The implication is that Jesus is the Redeemer of God's people, whether the Jews have rejected him or not, and that he has replaced the temple as the proper meeting place between God and men, whether the Jews approve of that or not. It is at that point in Stephen's speech that he says that he is seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of Almighty God, and that pretty much ends the formal proceedings. We don't know whether Stephen had a third point. His sermon is interrupted by the rage and violence of his accusers. They drag him out of the city and they stone him to death. And Saul approves of his execution. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. The speech of Stephen is one of the longest speeches recorded in the Bible. So obviously it's important, but why is it important? Why does this sermon and this story receive the kind of space and attention that it receives in Luke's narrative? And what, if any, is the value of this story to us as Christians living and witnessing in the world today? Here to walk us through that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Acts chapter 7. In the last chapter, we met an important character named Stephen. He was one of the seven new leaders, the proto-deacons, you might say, appointed by the apostles to help minister to the poor in Jerusalem. We're told that he was a godly man and a powerful man. Acts 6.5 says that he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Acts 6.8 says that he was full of grace and power and was doing great wonders and signs among the people. It was his preaching, however, that got him into trouble. He began publicly disputing with some Greek-speaking Jews, and they could not withstand his wisdom or spiritual insight. So they brought charges against him. They went to the leaders of the people and said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. In Acts 6, 13-14, we hear the specifics of the charges. They accused Stephen of preaching against this holy place. So that would be the temple. And the law, for we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. In Acts 7, we have Stephen's lengthy defense against those charges and the verdict and the sentence that was carried out at the conclusion of his trial. This is a long chapter, and Stephen gives us a long sermon. Stephen's sermon in Acts 7 is one of the longest recorded speeches in all the Bible. And I think that gives us an idea of its importance. Now, basically, Stephen makes two points in this rather long sermon. First of all, he says that the Jews have a long history of rejecting the people that God sends to deliver them. And secondly, he says that the Jews have a long history of falling into idolatry and superstition, particularly when it comes to the temple. The implication is that Jesus is the Redeemer of God's people, whether the Jews have rejected him or not, and that he has replaced the temple as the proper meeting place between God and men, whether the Jews approve of that or not. It is at that point in Stephen's speech that he says that he is seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of Almighty God, and that pretty much ends the formal proceedings. We don't know whether Stephen had a third point. His sermon is interrupted by the rage and violence of his accusers, they drag him out of the city, and they stone him to death. And Saul approves 
of his execution. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Now let's just pause and notice that Stephen, after a fairly lengthy preamble, has provided a piece of evidence. He has referred to the story of Joseph as an example of how the Jewish people have typically related to their redeemers. God used Joseph to save the people of Israel, but they were jealous of him and sold him into Egypt. The story of Joseph thus can be considered Exhibit A. Verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, he saw an angel 
appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning. And I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they returned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Here we observe Stephen concluding his first point and transitioning into his second. He has spoken about Moses, whom they rejected. Moses is exhibit B, another redeemer rejected by the people of God. And then in verse 40, Stephen begins to move into his second point. The people of God inclined towards idolatry. They said to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. And they made the golden calf and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. Verse 42. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So here Stephen is saying that the Jewish people have been lawbreakers and idolaters throughout their history. They started into their idolatry while Moses was up on Mount Sinai. It's a little hypocritical for you now to accuse me of being contrary to the law of Moses when you people were breaking the law of Moses while Moses was receiving the law of Moses. You were determined to engage in idolatry even then, even when God gave you the temple, you used it for idolatry. That's what Stephen is saying. Of course, that's true. We read that in 2 Chronicles 33, verse 3, where it says that Manasseh rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals and made Ashereth and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them, and he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Closed quote. So, you used the temple to worship idols, Stephen says. Are you so sure that God isn't prepared to remove the temple and do something entirely new? Because the temple has not brought about the sort of golden age of worship and purity that you seem to think that it has. 
That's the general thrust of Stephen's argument. We pick it up in verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses, directed him to make it according to the pattern that he, that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The first verse of chapter 8 tells us that Saul approved of his execution. And there is a sense in which this speech serves as a transition point in Luke's narrative. Chapter 8 tells us that on that day, the day of Stephen's execution, a great persecution arose in Jerusalem against the Christian community, and they were scattered throughout Judea and the surrounding areas. Thus, Stephen's speech marks a turn in the focus of Luke's story. Now we are hearing about the spread of the gospel in Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the Roman world. And Saul, who approved of Stephen's execution, will play a critical role in this next part of the story. So Stephen's, Stephen's speech serves as a sort of narrative hinge, but it also serves as something of a theological apologetic for that hinge. I, Howard Marshall, says here, the speech has its part in the total story of Acts in showing that the Jews to whom the gospel was first preached had rejected it, and thus clearing the way for the church to turn away from Jerusalem and the temple and to evangelize further afield and ultimately among the Gentiles. Closed quote. And that is what we shall see. We shall see the gospel being preached, still in Jerusalem, but now also in Judea, Samaria, and all the world. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I wanted to let people hear the full sermon summary in Acts 7 before we try to unpack that a little. As you said in the program audio, 
It is a long one relative to the other sermons we encounter in Acts. It's five and a half times as long as Peter's speech to the household of Cornelius, which was the first time the gospel was preached to an entirely Gentile audience. It is four and a half times as long as Paul's speech to the philosophers on Mars Hill. It's two and a half times as long as Paul's speech to the angry Jewish mob in Acts 22. And it's twice as long as Paul's speech before Agrippa and Festus in Acts 26. So why in the world does Luke assign this speech so much prime real estate in the heart of the Acts of the Apostles? Stephen wasn't even an apostle. So what is so significant about this story? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think there's not just one reason. I think there are actually a couple. The first reason, I think, is because it establishes an expectation of rejection and death for those who follow Jesus. I think Luke is saying that if you look like Jesus and if you speak like Jesus, then you might die like Jesus. You probably noticed all the similarities between Stephen's death and Jesus' death. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I mean, obviously, Luke, as a historian, isn't inventing details to make that connection. He was a doctor, after all. But the way he presents the details does seem to highlight those connections. Yeah, absolutely. Luke mentions that Stephen was convicted on the basis of false testimony. Okay, well... So was Jesus. Luke mentions that Stephen cried out at the moment of his death, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Which sounds a lot like Jesus who said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Luke yeah. 23, 34. Exactly that. So those similarities are not accidental. Luke is saying that those who look like Jesus and who speak like Jesus may be required to die like Jesus. The New Testament makes no effort whatsoever to soft sell that expectation. After all, that expectation comes from Jesus himself. He said to his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. That's John 15, 18 to 20. So if you stand opposed to the spirit of the age, then don't be surprised if the world hates you. If you follow Jesus, then you should expect opposition and hostility from the world. That's the general pattern. But until recently, that hasn't been the general pattern for Christians in North America. Yeah, and that's why this transition that we're experiencing right now is so difficult. Listen, if our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan or North Korea experience the sorts of hardships that we've been experiencing in Canada over the last three and a half mm. years, I'm not sure they'd even notice. They might think of that as a holiday compared to what they've endured. But for us, it does feel mildly traumatic. And it is a huge departure from the sort of treatment that we're used to. But if we're reading the Bible right, then we need to think of this as a return to normal. Peace, majority status, cultural privilege— those things are the exception. Resistance, rejection, marginalization, sometimes even martyrdom, those things are closer to the norm. Yeah, I'm really not sure how you could argue that. I'd like to argue that, but I'm not sure how I'd do it. So, yeah, I, I think it's a big part of why the story is in the Bible and, and what it's trying to do there. But I think there's more. I think it's also trying to remind us that pressure and persecution have always been part of the plan. Look at how Luke frames this story. Right after Stephen dies at the end of chapter 7, look again at what Luke says at the start of chapter 8. He says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. 
But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word, closed quote. Now, we've probably all heard the expression, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Well, that's exactly what we're seeing in this story. The death of Stephen, as tragic as it was, led to two massively significant events. The conversion of the Apostle Paul and the extension of the gospel mission beyond the confines of Jerusalem. This day, this tragic story, actually represents a critical hinge in the history of the movement. What felt like a setback was, in reality, positioning them for a great leap forward. And that's how it often works in the providence of God. We've seen that again and again and again. True, and I don't want to overstate this here, but I think there's a sense in which you might be able to say the same sort of thing about the pandemic that we've just been through. Isn't there? I think you could say that. The, The pandemic definitely knocked the church down, but when she got up, she was actually a lot stronger. The particular nature of COVID hit our gathered worship services particularly hard, as everyone remembers. Now, Did anyone enjoy that? No, of course not. But it may have facilitated a great leap forward in terms of our missiological reach. During the first phase of the pandemic at our church, we were averaging over a thousand screens every service. Now, there may have been two, three, four, five, we don't know, people behind each of those screens. But what we do know is that's far more people than actually belong to our church. What we quickly figured out is that in the first lockdown, larger churches were serving their congregations and people from smaller congregations who hadn't yet figured out the technology. We received emails from pastors all over the place telling us that they had directed their people to track with us until they figured out the technology. And figure it out they did. We know that because during the second lockdown, which began on December 26, 2020, about 10 months later, our screen numbers were down by about 25% because pretty much every church in the universe had figured out how to put their content online. Yeah, yeah, I I remember that. Even churches with like 25 people bought a camera and started a YouTube channel, which I imagine might turn out to be very helpful in the years and decades ahead. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And that is so often how it works in the Christian life. The devil slams a window over here and the Holy Spirit kicks a door open over there. What feels like a setback is actually a new beginning. Mm, Amen. I've heard something similar about the church in Iran, which people talk about as the fastest growing church in the world, because the large group gatherings were so easy to target. The church went underground a couple of decades ago, and that's made a really great use of the internet, such that now Persian-speaking people are hearing and responding to the gospel all over the world. Yeah, I think that's a great example of the principle. And of course, that's not to say that large group gatherings aren't important. Of course they are. And it isn't to say that live church isn't better than online church. Of course it is. It's just to say that pressure and persecution have always been part of the process. What the enemy means for harm, God turns toward the good. Yeah, and we talked about that back in Genesis in the Joseph story. Yeah, exactly right. So listen, are we experiencing more pressure here in North America than before? Yes, obviously. But I'm not angry about that, and I'm not despairing over that. Because to me, that just means that God has started to move. To me, that means we're entering into a whole new chapter. And it's not like the last chapter of evangelical history in North America was super awesome. I mean, a lot of what we're mourning the loss of wasn't vital Christianity in the first place. It was soft, it was sick, and a lot of it wasn't real, which is probably why it aroused so little animosity from the culture in the first place. 
But you're not saying that we should welcome persecution or even maybe even seek persecution, are you? No, no. I'm, I'm just saying that persecution and pressure have always been part of the plan. God uses these things. This is how you get diamonds. You take a mm. lump of carbon and you subject it to incredible pressure over significant amounts of time. And through that process, you get something unimaginably strong. The word diamond actually comes from the Greek word adamas, which means invincible. So pressure isn't fun, but pressure makes us strong. And persecution results in innovation and movement. So obviously we don't seek these things, but neither should we fear them. This is how the sovereign Lord of the universe stirs the pot. This is how he calls forth strength. This is how he works the yeast through the whole batch of dough. This is how he brings salvation, life, and renewal to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth. Thanks be to God. Yes, and amen to that, and thanks for taking the time to walk us through that. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.